can Turkey still experience a change of government or has it passed the Rubicon to the extent that democratic elections do not mean much and the regime is very strong and united around Erdogan? I think that's going to be the key question and the reason this election is so relevant for the international community. Welcome to Your Actives Beyond the Byline podcast. I'm Annie Tubbs, standing in for Evi Curie this week as we discuss next week's Turkish presidential elections. These elections, to be coupled with parliamentary elections on the 14th of May, are widely regarded as a milestone for 2023. What is the mood on the ground and how might this influence President Erdogan's chances of staying in office? As Aslaydin Tashbash, a fellow at the Brookings Institution in Washington DC, just alluded to, is there scope for a democratic electoral process to herald change? And what is at stake for the European Union and the wider international community? I was recently in Turkey in March, and I felt the country was on the edge of a nervous breakdown in the sense that in February they had this horrific earthquake which led to the death of over 50,000 people, huge national trauma. But on top, they had elections coming up and in a very polarized atmosphere, that too seemed to be almost an early trauma of sorts. Indeed, the 6th of February earthquake was a huge tragedy for Turkey and for Syria. Turning to Georgi Kotev, senior editor for Euractiv's Global Europe Policy Hub. President Erdogan has been in power since 1994. You described him in a recent opinion piece as being between two earthquakes. Can you tell us more? Erdogan's political career uh, took off 23 years ago, largely due to his ability to exploit the 1999 earthquake. He then exposed corruption, bad governance, poor construction standards, very much the same that is happening today. I remember at that time, the then government of Bülente Cevit uh, was slow in responding to the disaster. Coupled with the 2001 financial crash, at that time that helped uh, Erdogan, his uh, mildly Islamist AKP party, to win the 2002 general elections with an overwhelming uh, majority. He then secured two-thirds of the seats in uh, parliament. And he further won other uh, elections, each time receiving more votes than on the previous occasion. Ironically, the 2023 quake uh, seems to signal that Erdogan's political career is facing uh, an uphill battle. Tables have turned and the opposition in Turkey is now questioning Erdogan on his responsibility for the collapse of thousands of newly constructed buildings which should be able to resist a quake of this magnitude. Critics uh, such as opposition CHP party leader uh, Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu uh, argue that after 20 years in power, Erdogan's government has not prepared the country for earthquakes. A lot of funds have been collected and the government has never fully explained how the sums collected have been spent. Critics have complained that uh, construction standards uh, have not been observed in earthquake zones. They highlight a government amnesty 
that uh, means uh, violations of the building code could be swept away just by paying a fee. And that left uh, millions possibly of buildings with unclear uh, status as to their capacity to resist an earthquake. So yes, Erdogan's political career is largely between those two earthquakes. And there are once again significant concerns about the economy. I think the biggest concern right now is the macroeconomic instability, the inflation, because since September 2021, Turkish uh, economic management has opted a policy of lowering interest rates and depreciating the lira in an attempt to boost investment and exports, which would in turn close the current account deficit, produce a surplus, you know, increase investments and then uh, the currency would come down and the inflation would come down as well. Obviously, that set of policy did not produce any of the intended outcomes. Chancel Chuki is the director of Tukia Rapuru based in Istanbul. Now Turkey has a widening current account deficit. Investments are not increasing. Foreign direct investment is at an all-time loss and the central bank reserves are depleted and Turkey is right now uh, is really cautious about its FX uh, reserves and as the current account deficit widens, the central bank and economic management are trying to clamp down on FX demand in the country through capital controls, which are introduced by regulations on a daily basis almost. So in short, the expectation of the electorate is a solution to the inflation problem, which is at double digits. Uh, around 40-50% and it was even more than that before uh, in 2022. Inflation is so high that food prices are really unbearable, even for middle class. Asla again. It's not just that you go to the supermarket and eggs are expensive. It's way past that. What Turks are experiencing is things that force lifestyle changes. You have to leave your apartment. You have to take your kid from that school. You have to go back to your village because you cannot afford to live in a city anymore. You have to delay getting married because you cannot buy the sort of white goods, you know, refrigerator and stuff. I think it's leading a lot of people to consider changes. Jan, does the electorate blame President Erdogan for current issues? Some yes and some no. Some of the electorate obviously blames Erdogan and the government for this. Others, on the other hand, some of them blame foreign powers and the general uh, downturn in the global economy uh, with this misfortune of Turkey. Whereas others, while think that the government is to be faulted in the current economic situation, they also believe that it's only Erdogan that can, again, make these problems go away and take Turkey back on its track. By and large, the majority of Turkish citizens do want change. But of course, they are divided. They want change, but they have different ideologies, different identities. And therefore, you know, it's going to be an interesting race to watch. At this juncture, how polarized is voter opinion? President Erdogan has been in power for 20 years. He's a divisive figure. Uh, Elections are really about him. Do you like him or do you hate him? There's no middle ground. There is no doubt that his power is waning. His support, rather, is waning. 
So you are experiencing more of a doubling down in terms of some of the government's more hardline policies. The polls have suggested a 60 to 40 divide of the electorate for the past two years. The 60 represents the opposition in the form of six parties now united behind Mr. Klitsch Daroglu. How might this play out? So the game of the opposition candidate, Mr. Klitsch Daroglu, is indeed to preserve as much as he can out of the 60%, whereas the game plan of Mr. Erdogan is to swing votes to his side. Now, in the past 20 years, it was always Mr. Erdogan that started the elections in the lead, and the roles were the other way around, whereby Mr. Erdogan would try to preserve his support and the opposition would be in the attacking positions and, you know, Mr. Erdogan would emerge victorious. This time, it's a little different dynamic. How is the opposition placed to challenge President Erdogan, Georgi? I think the most important condition is that elections should be fair. And this is hard to expect from Erdogan, who has jailed political opponents. He has banned opposition parties. On 10 April, Turkey's chief uh, prosecutor submitted his uh, final case to the Constitutional Court to shut down the opposition uh, party, HDP, a major party of the Kurdish minority, the leader of which, uh, Selahattin Demirtas, is in jail for several years now. Already uh, before that, the court froze the HDP access to its bank account, a bank account through which uh, it should normally receive state funding according to law. It is, uh, of course, uh, significant that uh, CHP, the party of Kilicdarogu, won the crucial mayoral elections in uh, the big cities of uh, Ankara, Istanbul, and Izmir in 2019. But uh, Turkey is a big country with a lot of uh, rural populations, and more broadly, it's a country of many contrasts including secularism and Islamism, modernity and populism. I think the elections will be decided along those fault lines. Asla, how optimistic can we be that the system can support a democratic process? Already, in the run-up to the elections, you have a situation where democratic norms are bent and the race takes place in an uneven playing field. Add to that the government's you know, sort of illiberal authoritarian instincts add to that the monopoly over mainstream media. Turkey is a country that has had very strong security services, that has had remnants of the deep state. I think also laws that allow the government to control social media and spread of some information, even though social media is effectively an arena of free speech, despite everything. You also have the oversight of government, and that makes it difficult for the opposition, but it doesn't make it impossible. On the day of elections, it tends to be generally transparent. So all of these people being detained and, you know, sort of definitely suppression a little bit more on the Kurdish side and in eastern provinces, you know, sort of uneven playing field. All of that is in the run-up to the elections. The truth is, Turkey is this unique country 
where on the day of elections, it's competitive and transparent. And I think that is why this election is up for surprises. And our indicator for that is in 2019, in local elections, opposition parties got together in a similar way and swept across Turkey, winning nearly all major cities and Istanbul metropolis. So it is possible despite the odds. You're listening to Your Actives Beyond the Byline podcast. Subscribe to our podcast newsletter on youractive.com forward slash newsletters. If you want to expand your knowledge in other fields, you can listen to our tech, agri-food and health podcasts. And if you have any comments or ideas, you can drop us a line at podcasts at youractive.com. Asla, how might President Erdogan react to being successfully challenged? So I think that a neck and neck situation would be very difficult and certainly the government would ask for a recount. But if the gap is big enough, if the margin of an opposition victory is over one or two percent, probably let's say two percent, I think President Erdogan would concede. And I know people are are shocked when I say that because they expect me to say in interviews, no, President Erdogan will never give up power, etc. I don't think that's true. He has built his entire legitimacy on elections, the ballot, and he talks about it all the time, electoral legitimacy, how he's won. He has the right to do what he does because he's won the majority vote in the country that people are behind him. And, and that's been his entire political career. So I don't think he would defy that. Of course, if the margin is small, he might try to contest it here and there. But uh, something that has 1%, 2% difference, I think he would agree. And I think the system would declare the winner. What would be difficult for Turkey would be a runoff if there's no apparent winner in the first round. That means if neither candidate attains 51% in the first round on May 14th, then there will be a runoff two weeks after that. And I think there the government will use all that it can to clinch in a victory, it's going to be a politically tense period, no doubt. And that is something that people on all sides of the political aisle have flagged for me as a a sort of risky period. Another scenario that I think would be very difficult looking forward is a cohabitation. President Erdogan managing to clinch in a victory, but losing the majority to form uh, in the parliament. Or the reverse, Kılıçdaroğlu, the opposition candidate, winning, but losing the majority to Erdogan in the first round. I think all of those scenarios would be very problematic, would be a bit similar to the situation in Israel, where you have election after election in a divided society, And I think many people, both from the finance world and international observers, would conclude that this is only the first of a number of elections, that the jury is still out and that there will be more to this saga. And what do you see as key focus areas for whoever leads Turkey post-election? 
I think the top challenge after the elections for the next government will be the economy. President Erdogan has run Turkish economy by decrees and in a fairly eccentric manner. He defies economic theory and has his own ideas. For example, really thinks of interest rates as the mother of all evil and has, instead of raising interest rates, uh, he has lowered interest rates in fighting inflation, which as a result is, grew the inflation numbers that Turkey has. The numbers are not looking good. The balance books are not really looking good. The Turkish Central Bank is in a fragile position. So people worry about balance of payments crisis or uh, devaluation of Turkish lira and even a bank run. And I think it would be very important for the next government, particularly if the opposition wins. First of all, to say they are going to return to a rules-based, predictable management of the economy, in other words, orthodox economy. And I think secondly, to put forward figures that the markets in Turkey and internationally trust. They have among their ranks likes of Bilge Yilmaz from E-Party with sort of a, a finance uh, background, a Wharton uh, professor, and Ali Babajan uh, and his team that have run Turkish foreign policy during the period when Erdogan re- government was very successful. He's well known in the international community, sort of a Davos man. And so those figures would be important to have in the next government. I think if President Erdogan wins the economy, again, Again, will be the Achilles healed and could rapidly unravel. The second big issue, I think, would be legislatively how to undo what is effectively a one-man regime. The opposition's top pledge is that they're going to return to a rules-based order and reverse the hyper-centralized governance system that President Erdogan has brought about legally and constitutionally. But, you know, undoing something is very difficult and uh, might take a while. A state is, is an organism, particularly the Turkish state, that is complex and requires tough measures and, and at the same time, uh, patience. And I think the government's challenge would be how to bring about rule of law situation without triggering a a preservation reflex from the Turkish state. The other focus for us is Turkey's relationship with Europe, which is complex at the best of times. What critical elements are at stake and how might these be affected by the electoral outcome? The relationship with the EU is a non-issue right now in Turkey before the elections. And I think there are two sides to it. First of all, if the opposition indeed wins, as the polls suggest for the time being, they are looking to relaunch our relationship with many of the historic allies of Turkey, namely the EU, the US and NATO. However, I think while we are questioning how the perspectives in Turkey will change with regards to the EU in particular, I think we also need to talk about whether the EU is ready for a change in Turkey. Because in the recent years, let's say, the relationship has been on a transactional basis, right? It's either on security or cooperation over Russian invasion of Ukraine or the refugee deal, which is rather immoral way of uh, handling relationship between two partners. 
these all have been non-institutional and transactional. Georgi, Turkey received EU candidate status in Helsinki in 1999, but ceased qualifying for EU accession under President Erdogan. Can you remind us of how events unfolded? I was there in Helsinki and, and I remember uh, Bülente Cevit arriving uh, with three airplanes and uh, stating that uh, Turkey will be the leader country in democracy and secularism among the countries having a majority of uh, Muslim uh, population. Th- those were powerful messages, but uh, there was no such continuity with um, Erdogan. The Turkish coup attempt of uh, 15 July 2016 helped Erdogan strengthen his grip and uh, sent to jail political opponents. Then in 2016, the European Parliament uh, voted to suspend the accession negotiations with Turkey over human rights, the rule of law. In December, the European Council um, decided that it would open no new chapters in Turkey's membership talks. Then uh, came the migrant crisis of 2015-2016, which created a new paradigm in relations with uh, Erdogan repeatedly warning that he would flood Europe with migrants. I think it should be added, it's important in the global picture, the direct military intervention of Turkey into Syria. Turkey, Syria hitting at Kurdish forces in northern Syria, and this is uh, continuing. Then came the constitutional referendum in 2017, as a result of which uh, the office of the prime minister was abolished and the existing parliamentary system was replaced with an executive uh, presidency and the presidential system. I should also mention the tensions with Greece over the delimitation of economic zones in the Mediterranean and the Turkish ambitions to pump uh, offshore gas. Last but not least, uh, Turkey's veto on uh, Sweden joining uh, NATO has irritated uh, Western capitals and many hope for a change of power in Ankara, which would also help overcome this blockade. I think what the opposition is looking to have going forward is to, yes, relaunch the relationship with the EU, but also the expectation from the EU is to actually work be, uh, together with uh, Turkey to come up with a more uh, legal framework under which relationships uh, may continue. Obviously, the accession process does provide a uh, framework, and Mr. Kılıçdaroğlu uh, did pledge to uh, start some of the chapters uh, of that uh, negotiation immediately. Uh, particularly, I think, uh, pertaining to public procurement, uh, because obviously there are a lot of uh, irregularities there in Turkey. Uh, But I think the way things are, the accession process does not really provide a sufficient uh, framework for the bilateral uh, relationships. I mean, for example, the talk on the customs union modernization and deepening uh, have been uh, on hold, and that's actually the only a legal framework left uh, to continue a meaningful dialogue between the EU uh, and Turkey. So I think that's one area that both sides will need to uh, focus. And obviously this is in the event that uh, the opposition wins. In the event that uh, Mr. Erdogan 
uh, wins and AK Party uh, government continues to rule uh, Turkey, I think the same kind of transactional nature of uh, the relationship will remain intact. So any changes will take time and effort from all sides. Uh, I think that one should not expect major changes in the Turkish foreign policy, even if Erdogan uh, loses power. Um, for example, I don't think uh, Turkish policy vis-à-vis Greece uh, would change. But uh, the Turkish veto against Sweden at least uh, should be overcome. Um, possibly a better climate of relations should be expected between Ankara and Brussels. An overnight return to the bosom of transatlantic community would be very difficult. Even though Turkey's next leaders would want it, they need a balancing act with Russia, which controls not just the Black Sea now, but also Turkey's southern flank by way of its presence in Syria. Turkey has to have a balancing act when it comes to Russia, Russia-US, and Russia-Ukraine war. And then the other issue is obviously how to continue the de-escalation process in Syria without getting entangled with uh, some of the regional turmoil in Syria and uh, Iraq. These will be important issues. And on those issues, I think uh, a sort of a timed out rollout of a, of a pivot is, is going to be more likely than uh, an overnight shift in foreign policy. So I think it's a nail-biting election and certainly a consequential election for the world. I'm Annie Tubbs, and this was your Actives Beyond the Byline podcast. If you want to follow more news on the Turkish presidential elections, please head to youractive.com. And if you haven't subscribed to this podcast, you can do so on your favourite podcasting app. This episode was produced by myself, together with our executive producer, Malte Kettleson. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to welcoming you back next week.